I've got a strong opinion, and that is, if you want to make money for sure and you want it to be safe, invest in real estate. Don't bother investing in startups. It's very risky. And, and I see a lot of people in real estate also invest in startups, and they're looking for a 3 to 5x return. That is such a bad idea. If you're investing in startups, you need to do it because you're very passionate, and you're looking for a 100x return. And I'm not being hyperbolical here, because the asset is so risky where one out of every 10 companies will return a very large outcome. You have to build a portfolio and you have to look at each investment as, is this something that can generate me a 100x return potential? In real estate, it has been quite easy over the last decade to make three to five x returns. This is the We Love Real Estate podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 264 of the We Love Real Estate podcast with Sean Pan. On today's show, we have Zane Joffer. Zane is a startup founder who sold his company for $780 million in 2019 and now invests in commercial real estate as well as other startups as a VC fund manager. In this episode, Zane will talk about the differences between investing in prop tech startup companies and commercial real estate, and his thoughts on which asset class you should invest in if you want stable returns over the long run. So if you want to get a glimpse into investing in startups and how it compares to real estate, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show, and I'll see you next week. All right, Zay, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Great. My name is Zane Jaffer. I'm a former founder. had a big exit when I sold my company to Blackstone in 2019 for $780 million. Since then, I have been investing very actively with real estate. I started out by investing my own money through my family office, doing everything from construction loans, short-term rentals, warehouses, multifamily apartments, and also being on the LP side as an investor in many funds. And since then, I've teamed up with Bluefoot Capital where I now do all my real estate investing. Bluefoot Capital has billions of dollars of real estate focused primarily on multifamily with a lot of industrial, hospitality, and some senior care facilities as well. And we're also experimenting with new asset classes as well. Awesome. So, I mean, the very interesting part is you had a huge exit before, I guess, getting into real estate. So do you want to talk about the company that you started and what you did to sell? Yeah. So when apps were taking off, I had the idea that as you see all these ads on the web and on TV, it makes sense for you to have ads on mobile phones as well. And so that is what I did. I brought video ads to mobile phones and the company grew you know, very quickly. And during that whole period, I found myself having my entire net worth concentrated in a startup and startups go up and down. You know, you don't even take a salary for many years. And I saw other people in other industries like real estate getting cash flow, leveraging up and taking advantage of all the tax you know, advantages you can take. So I really wanted a piece of that. I thought to myself, okay, this is scary. I, I might be worth nothing or I might be worth you know, hundreds of millions, who knows? Uh, and so I swore to myself one day when I exit and do this magic trick of taking paper money and turning it to real money, I want to diversify that. And real estate was something I've always been very interested in. I also studied a lot of... Uh, success stories and there's so many that have come from the real estate sector and it seems like once you reach a certain amount of wealth real estate becomes a critical part of a portfolio 
That's why you see many family offices have a good allocation to real estate. And I thought to myself, okay, this is something I want to actively get involved with. I don't just want to passively, you know, give it to a fund manager and have them do everything for me. So that's sort of what spurred my curiosity. And then, you know, I'm Indian as well. So we, you know, in our culture, we, we, we have a lot of Indians in real estate. The hospitality sector especially has a lot of Indian, you know, people of origin. So uh, just always curious about that. Yeah. And so what has been your experience so far, the difference between running a startup company and now running this real estate firm? Oh, I mean, totally different in every way imaginable. The way you look at a startup. So I invest in startups and investing in startups means you are investing because you're passionate, you believe in the founder, and you don't want to take that same approach to real estate where you're, you know, you're believing in the broker, you're believing in the seller. You want to, you know, sanity check everything. And in real estate, you do a lot of due diligence. You'll look through the financial statements and you'll try to figure out what the right reasonable price is. And you'll look at, you know, your five-year projections and what your 10-year returns might be. That is a really flawed way of approaching startups and startup investing. So on both ends, especially now as I invest in startups and I also invest in real estate, I have to wear very different hats. But when you speak about, you know, being a founder yourself, uh, yeah, it's night and day different. But what is similar is you're running a business. What I come to appreciate in real estate is it's not just a building or it's not just an anonymous asset like a bond or fixed income. You are buying a business. And when it comes to buying a business, like if you buy a multifamily apartment, you have on-site staff that work for you and you're providing a product. In this case, it might be you know, a shelter and a home for people to live in and a community you want to create. And just like any business, you want to make sure that you're, you're solving problems that exist and you're doing all the things that a business has to do. For example, collecting cash. In real estate, that's essential. A lot of buildings might have high occupancy, but also in certain sectors, very high delinquency rates, which basically means people aren't paying. And so that is similar. And I like that active involvement, but it is, you know, it is a learning curve for sure when you enter the industry. So would you say... I guess in general, you're investing in startups for that growth potential because they could potentially go to 10x or even 100x if you, you know, jump onto a really uh, high profitable startup company. Whereas real estate investing is more for that stability, that fixed income and stable growth. I've got a strong opinion. And that is, if you want to make money for sure and you want it to be safe, invest in real estate. Don't bother investing in startups. It's very risky. And, and I see a lot of people in real estate also invest in startups and they're looking for a 3 to 5x return. That is such a bad idea. If you're investing in startups, you need to do it because you're very passionate and you're looking for a 100x return. And I'm not being hyperbolical here because the asset is so risky where one out of every 10 companies will return a very large outcome. You have to build a portfolio and you have to look at each investment as, is this something that can generate me a 100x return potential? If you're later stage, 10x is fine. In real estate, you know, it's quite easy or it has been quite easy over the last decade to make three to five x returns. And if someone's looking just to make money, don't go into startups and don't invest in startups. Very risky. But if you want stable returns in the startup asset class, then you have to approach it with a certain methodology, which I would say is build a diversified portfolio and go for at least 10 companies, ideally 20 companies, and make sure your exposure to startups is only a fraction of your overall net worth. So, you know, we're talking about portfolio allocation right now. But all too often, I see folks who are in real estate like brokers or, you know, anyone in the transaction side put in 50K, 100K, and that, that might be all they have. 
and now everything's concentrated in one company. And unfortunately, what generally happens is they lose all their money. And that's to be expected. You're only invested in one company. So they lose all their money and then they're shy and they don't want to do any more investments. I sort of feel like once you invest in one startup, you're forced to invest in 10 more to provide that diversification. There's many, um, and I can't quote the statistics verbatim here, but there's many studies done on returns and venture capital. And the more startups you invest in, the lower your IRR, but the more guarantee there is you're going to reach that level of IRR. You know, I don't remember the numbers, but I think 15 to 20% IRR is a very achievable if you have a portfolio of like 30 to 50. Whereas, you know, if you only have a portfolio of 10 companies, your IRR could be as high as 70, 80% or as low as zero, negative even, right? So the more investments you make, the steadier the return should be, but overall, the lower the return will be too. Yeah, as a diversification of buying different startup companies. So can you talk about the types of real estate you're investing in right now? So via Bluefield... We are doing hospitality, industrial, and multifamily. We haven't done any senior care deals recently. And we're also moving into sectors like construction of townhomes and some short-term rentals as well, which is, you know, of interest. It feels to me like um, the market moves in cycles. And for a while, it felt like there was a good opportunity to pick up a lot of real estate, especially during the pandemic. But that opportunity didn't last very long. You know, as soon as, the, and I'd say that opportunity lasted six to 12 months max. As soon as the, the pandemic hit, banks were freezing up on the mortgage process for a while. Sellers were panicking and you were able to get really good deals, especially if you were already in contract and you had cash to close. And we did a few of those deals. But afterwards, with the Fed pumping so much money into the system, with so much dry powder sitting around, I never expected real estate to heat up the way it has. And what that means is that to buy existing stabilized assets has been really, really challenging. We generally like to buy assets where we are confident we'll generate a net IRR to our LPs of 15%. And that's been pretty easy to do historically. And we've achieved net realized returns in excess of 30% over many, many years. But we made a hundred straight deals or offers last year. And we were out there in nearly every single one of those. And so when I said the market moves in cycles, Construction now seems to be an avenue which can generate higher returns and the replacement cost of some of these assets are now are, are you know, reaching equilibrium where perhaps it makes better sense to construct rather than to buy. And of course, you can't apply this rule generally everywhere, but in certain sectors, certain geographies, uh, we think there's better IRRs and we can hit our investor returns by doing more construction than buying actual assets. When you say construction, are you seeing new development? Yeah, ground up new development, especially townhomes is something we're doing a lot of. And to add to that, in tertiary and secondary markets as well. Places where other people aren't looking. You know, there are places all over the US. There's like North Carolina, there's, you know, Montana, there's Idaho, there's, I was going to say Utah, but Utah's heating up like crazy. There's all these secondary markets where larger funds aren't operating. There's a lot of mom and pop ownership of assets. And that means if you have institutional LP, not institutional LPs, but if you're a professional fund and you're, you're buying real estate, like in our case, we're having to go upstream, but historically we've, we've done really well with 10 to $30 million acquisition sizes. Now, you know, we're expanding that to 50 million because what was 30 million a few years ago is now 50 million, right? 
But that's a range where mom and pops can't really um, consolidate and drive a lot of action. But the range might be too small for private, larger private equity funds to come in. And this is also the case in secondary and tertiary markets. So we think there's a good opportunity there. And that's what we're actively doing right now. Can you break down the structure of what a deal would look like at the $30 million range? We will take debt on, obviously. So we'll get an LTV like 60-70%. We'll raise a couple of million dollars in equity, right? When we raise a couple of million dollars in equity and we take the rest through loans, um, we do something quite unique. We have a fund already set up, which we can call capital from. But we've also got a bunch of investors who don't want to invest in a fund and they want to underwrite certain deals. So if we need, let's say, a $5 million or a $6 million equity check, we might take $3 million from our fund, and then we might go to our list of direct investors who like to specifically underwrite each deal, and we'll raise the remaining $3 million from there. Sometimes we'll take a larger portion from our fund, uh, but that's how we'd raise it. And then on certain occasions, and I think you know this is a, a risk, but also a superpower if you can get away with it is a lot of these loans sometimes now are requiring personal recourse to some extent. And so we'll sometimes enter into those types of arrangements. And when we do that, we'll obviously carve out the risk, but that's what the debt comes with. Um, we're generally trying to underwrite to a 15% IRR. If we're doing other assets like hospitality or construction, the IRRs need to be much higher, 20% plus. The business model is, I would say, we want something that we believe will generate cash flow and something we'll hold for the long term. So with our investors, we'll set expectations that when you're investing in this project, we're not going to commit to a definite timeline. Historically, we've, we've realized you can't time cycles. And the last thing you want to do is force to sell an asset when you're entering a down cycle, which is what's happened to a lot of people. So we'll write a business plan where we'll assume a refinance at some point, which will you know increase our leveraged IRR and return capital to our uh, LPs. But ultimately, we don't necessarily get aggressive on modeling an exit scenario. And then another thing we do is we're quite conservative. And this is probably why we lost out on 100 plus deals last year. We're very conservative with our assumptions. I can't justify assuming the rent growth we've seen in markets will continue to sustain at the level it has. I see too many investors coming in when they're thinking about deal structure and assuming rents are going to keep growing 5% every year. Interest rates are going to remain very, very low. Cap rates are going to compress. Any one of these variables, when you modify them, make a deal pencil out. We've struggled to make deals pencil out because we refuse to assume cap rates will continue to compress. We want to assume for some safety buffer, cap rates will expand. And you know, if we're buying something at a 5% cap rate, maybe it will be 5.5% when we sell. Whereas uh, I'm just kind of scared and shocked a lot of investors are out there right now assuming the multiples for the real estate will continue to increase, which means cap rates decrease. Interest rates too. Like right now, at least the time of this podcast we're recording, there's a lot of talk and spooks that interest rates are going to you know, increase and they are increasing, right? That's going to have an impact in many areas in real estate. And, you know, that's something we, we've always, we've perhaps been too conservative on, but we like to be sensible with what we do. Another aspect out of these three I mentioned, a separate one is also the leverage value, right? And that's something we struggle with. I think we haven't come up with a blanket formula where we want to say, like when you ask me to break a deal structure down, 60%, 70%, it sometimes, you know, it matters a lot, right? Sometimes 50% leverage might be better versus 75, 80% leverage if you can get away with that. It really depends on the asset class and the amount and the terms associated with it too. Yeah. 
And speaking of your debt, what are your typical terms that come with the debt? It really varies, and I'm I'm and what I do at Bluefield, by the way, is I'm on the investment committee. I mainly focus on the venture capital fund, but I'm also involved in the investment committee on the debt side. Can't really talk too much in terms of uh, you know the specific terms. We have a team that sort of focus on that. I'm more on the VC side, but interest only is something that really helps pencil things out and sort of the timing of that overall. And then another thing I'd say also is、uh, when you're not sophisticated and you're working with a lot of small banks, and especially when you're trying to break into an industry, like I tried this myself, what can really kill you is the headline terms look really good on the term sheet, but then you've got all these hidden fees which kill you. Origination fees and other types of fees that are snuck in. So I think what I've appreciated since I've been at Bluefield is the relationships they have with larger lenders really means terms are more standardized. Whereas when you're new to the game, you're trying really hard to get the attention of a broker, you know, and you're trying really hard to be taken seriously so you can get deal flow. You're trying really hard also to get taken seriously by lenders, and very difficult to do, you know. When I started out, very little track record. I had track record of buying single-family rentals and small, small assets, but to break into multifamily,、uh, track record really matters, and I think you get taken to the cleaners if you don't know what you're doing. Even on the、um, exit side, you know, I'm, I'm one who really believes rewarding brokers. But if you're not in the industry and you don't know what you're doing, you might accidentally be thinking six percent is standard as you know a fee when they're listing or selling your asset for you. Whereas when you're part of a bigger platform, you've got a straight up deal where it's like three percent or you know two percent, depending on the asset size. So structure is something that I think、um, is something people don't appreciate when you're with a larger platform. That's an advantage they have, and that's part of the reason why I decided to go from being my own actively managed family office to joining a platform like Bluefield, where they have relationships and they just do a lot better overall than the individual amateur mom and pop, you know, wannabe investor. Yeah, makes sense. And you mentioned that you were in charge of the VC fund. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a tech entrepreneur at heart. You know, as I mentioned, I started my last company in the tech industry, and I love working with startups. When I came into real estate, I was horrified at how ancient the industry is with its usage of technology, and so I went out looking to see if we can implement technology in our real estate portfolio. As I started to do that, it just made sense. Let me start investing in startups as well, and so we set up a venture capital fund, and the idea was. Let's find startups that can improve our real estate performance. If we have a startup that can improve our revenue or decrease our costs, that's going to jump to the bottom line our NOI. And NOI is beautiful because it really multiplies the value of your your real estate. So we've we've invested in fifteen companies to date. We invest across the sector. Obviously, we're biased towards areas we understand. So if the startups that are servicing multifamily or hotels or industrial. We like those a lot because we understand them, but also there are larger, major trends in real estate that are happening, and so we invest in startups that capture those trends as well. Now, is that VC fund for just you and your family office, or is that also part of Bluefield? No, that's part of Bluefield. That's separate. That's something we set up, and we have limited partners who are from the industry. And、um, sort of when you talked about portfolio construction,、uh, the way you approach an investment too when you run a venture capital fund is very different than the way you approach it when you're just an angel investor. You know, so we've got a, a lot of structure on that side, and sort of a well thought out portfolio construction strategy. 
Yeah. So you mentioned you just two funds, right? One is your fund for VC fund for prop tech startups. And the other fund you have is just to pull cash to invest in some of your deals if you want to have your syndication in the future. Can you tell us the difference between those two funds? And I guess what are some terms that go along with those funds? Yeah. So this model actually works very similar across real estate and startups. Okay. So you have a fund and you raise money from LPs. And usually these have to be accredited investors and they have to meet certain qualifications. And the minimums, you know, for a fund might be like a hundred thousand, sometimes 250,000. Although you can be flexible and you can let some people invest at a lower level if you want. You pull this capital together. You need to create like a PPM or private placement memorandum or a deck that outlines what your strategy is. In the case of our real estate fund, we set up a $30 million fund recently. We've got a lot of funds, hundreds of millions of dollars of assets under management, but the fund that you know I set up at Bluefield, we set up $30 million as a strategic fund. And the idea was, and the pitch was, look, the pandemic just hit. We think there's going to be blood on the streets. And we think there's an opportunity to buy right now. And so we went out and we raised the money. And with that $30 million, that's sort of what will be for the equity. So $30 million should buy at least $100 million worth of real estate, right? Because you're taking loans on top of that. And you've basically got commitments from people and you'll call that capital maybe every quarter, maybe every six months, or maybe when there's a deal. So we've, we've deployed about slightly less than half the fund. And we were hoping we would have been deployed you know, within 12 months, but it took longer. And we hope we'll be deployed by the end of this year in that specific fund. But you know, like a deal comes up, like let's just say there's a, a $50 million uh, multifamily apartment, right? And we're able to get, uh, let's just say, $30, $35 million in loans. So we need about $15 million in equity. That's too much for the fund to put in if it's only 30 million, right? So the fund might take like five, six million of that. Now the remaining like 10 million will go out to other people and will say, hey, here's a building we're planning to buy and you can invest directly. And that's what we call setting up SPVs and letting people invest directly in a deal. Now the terms for these two are quite different. The fund itself will have a management fee and that management fee is charged. It depends. Sometimes it's on the entire committed capital. So if you've committed, um, I don't know, like a million dollars to the fund, right? We'll charge 2% annually. Sometimes it's only on called capital. So what that means is you've committed a million, but you've only wired 100,000 because we've only needed 10%. So we're only charging a management fee on that 10%. Okay. The management fees range, but standard industry, I'd say is about 2%. In the venture capital industry, the standard's higher. The standard's 2.5%, sometimes 3%. In our fund, it's actually 2% because I just want to keep it clean and simple. And then um, the other thing we do is we take carry. Carry is how we make our money, which is basically what we take when the investor makes their money back. So once you've had your capital returned, we have something called a promote structure. And that varies a lot. It can be 50%. In our case, it's 30%, which basically means... If you invest a uh, hundred thousand and we triple that, which is sort of the expectation, we want to triple the money, right? There's two hundred thousand dollars of returns here. We'll take thirty percent of those returns and seventy percent will go back to you. In venture capital, it's similar, although the promote is twenty eighty generally. That's the standard. So the venture capital fund two percent management fees, maybe three point five percent in that range, with an eighty twenty split. In private equity real estate, it's as I mentioned. Again, around 2 to 2.5% two management fee and a 70-30 split, sometimes 50-50. Now, there's another thing which is called a preferred return. And that isn't what you get in a venture capital fund usually. A preferred return is what you get in a real estate private equity fund where 
we guarantee up to a certain threshold, the money will go to you. So let's just say in our fund, we have a 7% preferred return. So all the cash flow that comes out, that first 7% goes to you. And then we will split the proceeds after that. So preferred returns are, um, you know, very powerful. But like in our case, our preferred return is high. And it's very hard to get those types of preferred returns when you're underwriting an investment. You know, to, to share more context here, for example, the terms you set out when you create a fund can really limit what you can do in a good way and a bad way. So in a bad way, for example, I see great opportunities that I would love to put in our fund. But people invest in the fund because they want that 7% preferred return. So cash flow is important, which means I can't invest in projects like construction because there's no cash flow coming in for maybe, you know, one or two years. Even though the overall investor returns will be high, like a 20% IRR, I can't do that deal. So, you know, we have a different fund for that. In other cases, it's a strength sometimes. For example, uh, if you're a very large institutional fund, like you're a Blackstone, your investors are very happy getting a 5% you know, uh, IRR or cash return. So you're out there and you've got a license to buy all day long. And hey, if it pencils out, you're going to buy it because your investors are okay with that. So in that case, you know, that's hurting smaller funds like ourselves because we can't compete with other investors who are okay generating such a low return. Uh, so having a fund comes with the benefit because you've got this pool of capital that people are legally obliged to commit on. So it solves the headache. You know, if you see something you like, you don't have to go do this exercise where you have to now call up all your friends and tie the deal under contract, put some earnest money, deposit down, and then you're not sure you can close on the deal. Here I know I've got a fund behind me. I've got people that have committed capital. I've got a license to buy and I can close this deal. Whereas if you don't have that fund, now you have to do the other process I outlined. And in our case, you know, we're doing a bit of both. We'll go direct to some investors and in other cases, We'll um we'll have the fund you know write a large part of the of the check. Yeah, um, I think most people who do syndications do the latter method, where they just have a deal and then they have to pull all the investors to fund their deal. And it's fun but risky too. How many deals I've seen where a syndicator tries to put a deal under contract and they can't raise the funds? They yeah. seek extension after extension, and eventually, well, what they do if they're smart is they assign the contract to someone else. And assigning the contract might mean they get paid like an assignment fee or an acquisition fee, and that can vary. Or they might roll their fee or they might partner with another fund. And what this is called is like a co-GP split. I like co-GP splits a lot because you, you've got other smart people around the table. So if you're not able to raise the capital, you can bring the deal to us, for example, and we'll bring half the capital. Now you only have to bring the other half and we'll ideally split the co-GP fees. And this is a model that I think... Uh, a lot of real estate funds want to own everything themselves, but I think the co-GP model is brilliant because you gain access to markets and, you know, two firms can team up or two individuals can team up and uh, partner together and rather than compete against each other. And has it been a challenge trying to do this nationwide? Yeah, it definitely has been a challenge because real estate is something where you really need to know your local market. And if you spread yourself very thin and you try to do things nationwide, you can never really know that market very well. Uh, we know markets very well because our partners are from those markets and so we've done deals in those markets. Often what, what you'll find, Sean, is that people end up either owning the asset class or owning the location or when they start out owning the asset class in that location. So you end up looking to really break into real estate and you buy something, you know, maybe one or two hours from where you live. That worked out really well. You bought an apartment, okay? Then you see another apartment, you know, maybe a few blocks away, maybe within a mile radius, 
And so you just start to focus there and you buy that apartment too. Now you actually have uh, an advantage, right? You might be able to share staff between the two buildings. I do this a lot. You don't need two offices. You can have one office instead. You can share staff between the offices. You can also package a portfolio together, which makes the you know individual assets worth more. But then you start to basically build a sector expertise in a location. And often, honestly, the way this ends up, as much as I would like to tell you, you need to take a really scientific methodology. You need to look at the market comps. You need to look at the employment rates. You need to look at the um, diversification of uh, jobs and uh, population growth. It's sometimes luck. I end up buying there because I already own something there. And I, you know, because I own something there, I just tend to be more comfortable and I develop a reputation in town because everyone calls me because I know I'm one of the largest buyers in that town. That's basically the story of many, many firms that we've transacted with or that, you know, I've uh, bought from or whatever. Yeah. And just slowly over time, you're building reputation and you're making more contacts so that it becomes easier and easier to buy more and more deals. So I also know that you have a podcast called the PropTech VC Podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about it and tell us some of the emerging trends that you've seen so far? Wow. I mean, I got a whole podcast on this topic, right? Which spans, I don't know, 50 plus you know, shows or whatever. Real estate is undergoing a transformation. Right now, the industry thrives on information asymmetry. There is a whole industry of middlemen and not that... I respect the work the middlemen do because I, I, I definitely respect it. But the real issue is that it's unlike other industries. A lot of the times it's, I know something about this property that you don't know. And so I'm going to use that information advantage and I'm going to get a good deal. And technology is going to change that. It's going to drive commissions down. And the way people will do things in real estate too is very old school. Many firms run their entire real estate operations off basic software or spreadsheets. And that should all really be automated. And I think the next generation of firms are going to be powered by AI and also powered by uh, what I would say is, you know, blockchain type of technologies, what we call Web3 in our industry. So my, my podcast, PropTechVC or PropTechVC.com, which is where you can find it, covers all those trends, brings on founders and also brings on real estate folks too. You know, people who are investors and agents, brokers, lenders, title companies, you name it, bringing them in and asking them, you know, how is technology impacting what you do? And it's really fascinating. And I obviously like to bring people that use technology a lot. So in that, you have people that are early adopters and bringing them on is really fun because you're seeing how they use technology. Yeah. I mean, even uh, personally, so I'm a hard money lender and we do loans across the country as well. And for a long time, we were doing all of our intake through Google Sheets. <laughs> it's like an antiquated type of thing, but it works, right? It's simple, but it leaves a lot to be desired. And we're slowly building in some new technology stuff like with Salesforce and other things. I'm not an expert on the debt side. I did a little bit of hard money lending, but not professionalized, probably like you when I first started out. I really, you know, I'm a founder at heart and the whole debt game is something really hard for me to get my head around. I appreciate the leverage, but... I'm glad I've got a great team at Bluefield that specializes in this, you know, especially on the debt side. But like even in construction, hard money lending, uh, it's hilarious. Like, you know, some people just send you a photo in different phases of how the project's being developed. And then you get these sporadic updates. And okay, based on the picture, now you're going to draw and you're going to allow people more money. And it's like, come on, you, you could use so much better technology there, you know, and you can actually measure exactly what's getting done by using AI and image recognition. So e even, even that. And then I also didn't realize, you know, coming in, I was eager to deploy money. And so hard money lending to me felt like a good place to start. So I would, I would lend and, you know, you'd have a first position ideally on the asset. 
I didn't realize the there's so many ways to make money, you know, and, and not not to sort of um, put you on the spot here, right? But there's a lot more than interest. The interest rate you can take on too. There's all these extra fees you can charge, and I didn't know that when I was doing them myself. So I wasn't, you know, not surprised. Everyone was coming to me looking to borrow money for some of these projects. But that was a way for me to sort of just understand and learn about real estate. When you invest in something, you appreciate it. Afterwards, I realized, man, I should have asked what other terms they had. My terms are sweet. You know, I got excited by the interest rate, but there were so many more ways to make money uh, when it came to the terms. And so I, I got out of that game and, you know, decided just to be on the equity side. And also the interest you make, at least the way I understand it, the tax is not the best. You know, it's taxed, if I'm correct, the short term rate, which hurts versus, you know, if you take a preferred return, you've got some really good capital gains treatment there. Yeah, that's true. And so from your podcast, what have been some of the most, I guess, uh, exciting projects that you've heard about? Oh, you know, every founder I bring on is passionate and wants to change, change the world. I think I'll, I'll talk more about some of the trends I'm excited about because there's just so many founders that have come on and each one just, you know, electrifies me completely. You know, I recently had one of the co-founders of uh, Redfin on and I actually invested in his company and uh, the company's called Deep Sentinel. And for a lot of real estate listeners, they'll appreciate this. I started out buying a lot of value-add assets where there was uh, often what I would say affordable housing in Class C. Security is a major challenge. And I've had things happen on my properties. And when you, when you have, you know, my family office has 400 units and Bluefield has you know, probably 10,000 plus units. Things happen, right? I've had murders happen. On properties, you've got things like homeless people breaking in and squatting or staying in the laundry areas. And so to fix that, we thought, okay, we can put cameras up. But cameras, you require like the footage to be saved and monitored, or you can hire security patrol, which can cost tens of thousands of dollars. So this this guy, David, who founded uh, Deep Sentinel, one of the former, you know, co-founders of Redfin, right, done really well. He's invented this uh, camera where there's a two-way audio happening and it goes to a remote control center. So they use AI to recognize if anything seems weird. They can differentiate between someone, you know, opening the door going into the unit versus someone loitering around and stealing packages. So the AI notifies a call center. The call center immediately looks at what's happening and is able to communicate through the video, uh, through the camera. And it scares the hell out of people. You know, like, excuse me, you're being monitored. How can I help you? Or, you know, you're trespassing. They had one video on their website where a bear was, uh, like, you know, on some, like, patio. And the alarm starts ringing from the audio camera and the bear freaks out and runs away, right? So I really love that technology because it's using AI and it's, it's you know, if you implement that, you've got a superpower because you can now buy value-add assets and provide an amenity, which is, you know, 24-7 personal security, right? So that's one. Um, other trends, and I, I don't want to get too technical. I'm not sure how deep to go on this, but blockchain and um, the idea of tokenizing real estate. I was very skeptical a couple of years ago, but now I'm starting to become a believer. And I think that's a really major trend. And I think, you know, the advent of NFTs and cryptocurrencies and metaverses, all of this is bringing really interesting excitement to the space. So th those are probably two trends I'd touch on. You know, for the blockchain one, I've actually been approached by several people who have that similar like concept where they allow you to buy real estate for as little as $1 because they're going to itemize it on the blockchain somewhere. But one of the biggest concerns I think some people had was what's the legality of it? So, you know, if you eventually want your 5% share of the property, how do you prove that you actually own 5% of the share? Even though it's on the blockchain somewhere, uh, what does that really mean? 
Yeah, and how, how are courts going to interpret this when, you know, there's a dispute, real estate accounts for the majority of legal disputes. And I think there is promise, but regulation is needed. And in the case when you talk about like a dollar minimum, well, then you're not, you're not really dealing with accredited investors. So now you're running afoul of the SEC potentially. And, and it's these types of issues that are still being worked out. And the business model also is tough because if you're the platform, if you're trying to take a commission, that's illegal because now you're, you know, you're not registered with the SEC. You could, you need a broker dealer license to do that. So what some platforms do is they just charge a, a one-off fee independent of what's going on. But look, here's sort of how my learning has evolved. Okay. I spend every day mostly investing in technology startups in real estate and also, you know, managing the portfolio of real estate Bluefield. What I've come to appreciate is that it's not in the one-off transaction where the magic happens. Like we're raising money and we want to fractionalize this real estate. We want to split it into a hundred thousand different chunks and sell each chunk via a token for a dollar or $10. Okay. That's a one-off sale. And like, it's not where the magic is. The magic is in the secondary sales. The magic is now, what if I have this chunk of real estate and I can sell it to you and you can sell it to someone else and you can trade around it. Now you've got this token that's being traded like a stock would be traded. See, it's not in raising the money one time like you could when you're buying real estate. It's the promise of creating liquidity. And and that's interesting because hedge funds trade companies which are far more complicated than real estate. And they trade them based on so much data and sometimes in milliseconds, you know, they're able to transact why can't we do that with real estate? And that's the dream and the promise of the idea of fractionalization and blockchain. Yeah, exactly. So, but the question is also like, how are they going to get around that regulation, right? And that's the challenge. You know, and this is the thing. When Uber started out, when Airbnb started out, they all ran afoul of regulations. VCs aren't terrified of regulation, actually. Like a venture capitalist like myself um, looks at a startup that has regulatory issues and sees that as, okay, then great startups do tend to disrupt the status quo. They tend to be disruptive. Eventually, you know, yeah, it's a regulation game they have to deal with, but it's disruptive. If they're doing something disruptive, they're going to attract that, you know, problem and regulations inevitably change. And also it's a barrier to entry. Like you look at a company that does something, what would be considered, you know, questionable on the regulatory side, not not legal or unethical, by the way, I don't want to imply this. Regulations are there to protect consumers, but sometimes regulations are out of touch and are decided by people sitting in ivory towers without any real, you know, sense of what is happening on the ground. But if you can deal with these issues, you create a barrier to entry. And as a VC, you just have to realize there's a lot of risk and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay taking a risk on something even though there's a 10% chance it will succeed. But if it's got like a 10% chance it will return 100x, hell yeah. That is a bet you should make all day long. Not a mindset you can apply to real estate, by the way. Like don't do that with real estate. It's like, I've made a lot of mistakes, right? And with real estate, you have to be very shrewd and you don't want to get greedy either in real estate. Like you have to find where you want to sit on the risk spectrum. You know, whether that's cool, cool plus or opportunistic or whatever. But it's hard to lose money in real estate or it has been over the last several years. Unless you're in construction or you're dealing with people that steal your money, which happens to, you know. Yeah, as long as you buy right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Zane, do you have any last minute tips for our listeners before we wrap up our show today? No, I mean, um, just to sort of summarize the key takeaways is 
I think it's important for all investors to diversify. And if you're looking for exposure to startups, it's so different to real estate. I think it's so complementary. There is this really cool Venn diagram that both sides benefit from. Venture capital funds and real estate funds benefit from this because VC funds have a lot of LPs from the real estate world who want exposure to the exciting tech industry. And real estate folks want expo- you know, have a lot of LPs from people like me who are in startups or even cryptocurrency folks who make a lot of money and now want to protect that money. And so I think it's good to diversify your wealth. I don't think you should put too much into startups. Start small, go for 10 companies, ideally 5 to 10% of your net worth. Same for cryptos too, you know, and just approach them differently. Like you'll never assume you'll lose all of that money and it's going to be locked up for 10 years if you invest in startups. Sounds good. And Zane, how can people find out more about you? Yeah, uh, proptechvc.com or zane at proptechvc.com. That's uh, sort of my website and uh, that's where I publish some of my uh, thoughts and um, you can listen to the podcast in there as well. Wonderful. Well, Zane, thank you again so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much too. I appreciate it as well. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.